Excited to be with you guys today for the online message. It's always fun when I get to do this. Always fun when I go from uh, senior to welcome to senior right here. So hopefully uh, you guys enjoy today's conversation. I'm excited about it. I think we're going to uh, do a little deep dive into a passage maybe we're a little familiar with, but we're going to kind of uh, take a little bit of a deeper look than we normally do uh, for our own sake. And so my first question for you is this, any Marvel fans out there? I can't see you, but I assume that over 90% of the viewership at the moment is raising their hands and doing jumping jacks because everybody loves Marvel. Specifically, how about Spider-Man fans? I know that we've had movie number three just come out and Spider-Man's all the rage, but uh, what I'm asking is, is really about those early movies, those early comic books. I remember when I was a kid, uh, my dad bought me a book, a Spider-Man book, and uh, it had some of those original quotes in it, and I used to sit down, I used to read it with him, and he would read it uh, with me. And one of the quotes in that book that always stood out to me uh, was from Uncle Ben. It was its own page. It had its own picture of Peter Parker and Uncle Ben together. Uh, and it had only the quote on the page. And I can remember it vividly. And it's Uncle Ben uh, telling Peter Parker, Spider-Man, you need to understand that with great power comes great responsibility. And I, I, I think that quote has always stuck with me because my dad used to tell me, hey, if you're going to be influential, if you're going to have this, then there's a way to use it. There's a way to carry yourself with that. And so we're getting these little life lessons from our Marvel uh, books, and that quote's also in the movies. And so I uh, always remember that one in particular sticking with me uh, because it was for me. Dad would always say, hey, this is something that you're going to have to grab onto uh, even though it's in this superhero book, right? And so I remember that one specifically, and I think that as I get older— you know, you start to wrestle with the reality of what power means and what authority means. And I think we're all pretty familiar with authority, uh, but maybe not so much power. We all uh, have some kind of uh, authority. We all have some kind of responsibility, right? With great power comes great responsibility, and that's the one we're pretty familiar with. And we know responsibility. I know responsibility as a parent. You know responsibility uh, as a parent. You know responsibility as a teacher. You know responsibility as a coworker. You know responsibility as a boss. Our lives are littered with the idea of responsibility, right? It's all over everything. We're responsible for many things. But the one thing that I think is a little tricky in today's age is that word power. I know what I'm responsible for, but I don't necessarily know what power I have, how powerful I am. How are those two things correlated? And I think there's some gray areas uh, because of today's culture in particular, right? What, what even is power? What does it look like to have power, right? Uh, what is power? Is it the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want? Is that what makes you powerful? Or how do you divine, define power? As an individual, how do I define power? Is, is it having a bunch of influence or the ability to tell other people what to do, uh, whenever you need them to do it, or, or however you need them to do it, because that's certainly kind of the, the angle that my dad took when he started telling me about influence, authority, and power. Or how does culture define power? Just because you define power a certain way doesn't mean culture defines power that same way. Is power shaped by influence and exercised and the ability to go and get whatever you want whenever you want? Is that what makes you powerful, being able to take stuff kind of like a, a dictator does? What is power? How do we navigate that? How do, we, how do we make that our own, and then how do we translate, okay, I've identified what power is, now I'm identifying the responsibility I have on the other side of power. Uh, because I'm a black and white guy, I went to Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, and I said, okay, well, we've got some ambiguity around this word power, 
but I, I want to know what it actually means. And, and Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition says, power is possession of control, authority, or influence over others. So some kind of hodgepodge of all of these different things, right? And I, and I think at first glance, at the first time we hear power innately, I think that it probably has a negative connotation because it's not a word that gets thrown around a lot with a positive connotation anymore, right? Uh, I think that oftentimes when we hear it, um, we think, man, immediately dictators or villains, right? Those are the kind of things that we think they have power. They're abusing their power. But if power is influence, and if power is uh, authority, and if power is the ability uh, to have control over something, that doesn't necessarily make it inherently negative, right? Uh, as parents, you want to have influence over your kids, right? You want to influence the things that they do. Uh, you want to teach them to be good leaders. You want to be powerful enough in their eyes that they start to heed your advice. I'm realizing that as a young parent, right? Like, I want to be a big enough deal. I want to have enough authority that when my kid says, uh, or when I tell my kid to listen, he's not doing it out of fear, but he's doing it out of influence because he trusts me because I'm his dad, right? Uh, maybe if you're a dog owner, here's that control word, you desire to have some control over something, right? If you have no desire to control your dog, I certainly have a desire for you to control your dog, right? And so you see influence and you see control, two of those three words wrapped up in that. Or maybe the last one is any of you teachers listening. I mentioned you guys a second ago, but you want to have some kind of authority in your classroom, right? As you begin to teach your students and, and keep them under control when they get out of line, you want to have some kind of authority to go alongside your influence. None of those three things are bad, right? Being a parent, uh, being a dog trainer, or having a dog, right? Or, or even uh, being a teacher, none of those things are inherently bad. They all have a positive connotation when it comes to uh, power, authority, and influence in their own uh, pocket of the world, right? And so when you think power and you think those things, I don't want you guys to think inherently evil or bad. I want you guys to think that power can be a good thing. So what we're going to try to do today is put villains and dictators on the back burner and assume that power hungry is the minority and say that power is a good thing to have, it is a good thing to strive for because with power comes influence. And that's kind of what I want to do today. I want to redeem the word power. And, and usually what we do in these standalone uh, messages is we pick something that's been on our heart. And if you uh, get to listen to me on my standalone messages often, then you know this, you know that I'm probably going to go figure out uh, what Jesus is talking about in some way, shape, or form, right? We're gonna, probably going to go to this Jesus guy. We're probably going to see what he has to say on a topic, uh, and we're probably going to dive into that a little bit and unpack that, because what I love about Jesus is, is sometimes he's very direct. Other times he's very indirect to get you to come to your own conclusions. And so the conversation specifically that I want to look at today uh, is maybe a blend of all of that, but it's the last conversation that Jesus has before he stops and he goes up to heaven. It's going to be the last conversation that he sits down uh, and talks about with his disciples before he leaves them. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 as we start to kind of unpack some of this conversation. And we're going to start reading in verse 3. I know there's a couple of verses before we get to that word in particular that I really want to unpack. But uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and start in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. It should be popping up somewhere around me on the screen right here so you can follow along with us. But uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, here's how this conversation uh, starts. Luke's writing, he's the author of Acts, and he's talking about this, this interaction that Jesus had with his disciples. It says, after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking with them about the kingdom of God. Okay, quick pause, not really relevant to where we're going, but as an apologetics nerd, I just want you to know I'm fascinated by this verse in particular, because what this verse says is, after Jesus suffered, after he was dead, after he came back to life, he went and he hung out for 40 days. 
And so you got all these eyewitness accounts saying, hey, this Jesus guy is back. He's real. He's alive. He hasn't gone anywhere, uh, which is just some awesome ammo in your hopper as a Christian as you start to have some of these conversations. But complete side conversation. Don't want to get too distracted there. Let's keep reading. You dive into verse 4. It says, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, the disciples, that is, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they, came, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the king of Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so there's our word in the last verse of this little section, right? Fascinating. So Jesus, he's, he's still there. He's still come back from the dead, and he's hanging out. He's been there for 40 days. And it says in verse 4 that he starts to sit down, and he starts to have a conversation with his disciples. And it says, in this conversation with his disciples, he says, hey, you're about to get that promise that I've been talking to you about. That thing that I've been telling you is coming, the thing that's, that's better for you to have than for me here in the present, that thing is coming. And what I want you to know is that it's going to come in a big way. And so he says, hey, this thing that we've been having a conversation about, I'm about to leave. It's about to come. And here's kind of what it's going to look like. You have heard that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So he's saying, okay, now we're going to start to unpack a little bit of this promise. We're going to start to put uh, a shape and a name to it. And we're going to start to give you an idea of what that promise looks like that you're going to get when I leave. And so you can imagine disciples are sitting around the table. They've been hearing about this thing, and they're absolutely leaning in because for the first time, they're starting to realize the reality is setting in. Jesus is leaving. That's the only way they get this promise. And so here comes this promise that's been really kind of vague and ambiguous, and they haven't really been able to put a face or a name to. And here all of a sudden, here comes Jesus. And he says, this is what that promise is going to look like. I'm finally giving you a pretty clear picture of what that promise is going to look like. He says, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. He says, okay, I know you know John, right? I know that he was on the scene when I showed up on the scene. And the first thing you saw him do was baptize, right? You saw him baptize me in particular. And I want you to know that the way that he baptized, where he completely covered these people in water, they were completely immersed from head to toe. There was not a piece of them exposed. That's going to be a little indicator of what this gift looks like. That's going to be a little indicator of what this promise that's coming starts to look like. And so the same way that John baptized with the water, I want you to know you are going to be fully immersed with this gift, with this, with this thing, with this promise that is called the Holy Spirit. So he starts to kind of put a little bit of, of context behind this promise and what that looks like. And so naturally, when they hear that, they start to have some questions, right? That sounds like a big deal. You're telling me the Holy Spirit, the helper that's coming, he's going he's gonna to do that. He's going to completely uh, overwhelm us, right? He's going to take over us. He's going to live inside of us. Does that mean that you have a plan for us? And so in verse 7, naturally, they start to go back to, or verse 6, I'm sorry, they start to go back to the things uh, that Jesus has told them are coming. They start to go back to the things that they knew in their background and their upbringings uh, that are important because of their good Jewish custom. And they ask immediately, okay, if that's what the promise looks like, if that's what's coming down the pipeline, then Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Are you going to get the kingdom back? Are you going to give it back to Israel? Is that what you're about to do with this, with this gift, with this promise? Is that what you're about to use us to do? Is that what's going to happen? And Jesus looks at them, and he says this, and this is 
uh, as I was kind of going over this and I was chewing on this, this is kind of a, a little shot to the heart, right? He says to them, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. And so they're excited, right? They're like, okay, this promise is coming. This is what you're telling us it's going to do. We just have one question. Is this the promise you're going to use to restore Israel? And Jesus immediately looks back at them and says, hey, 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 quit asking questions, right? I'm about to tell you what to do. I'm about to tell you what your job looks like. But what I need you to know is that it's not for you to start asking questions about the timelines and the plans that the Father is orchestrating. Your job is not to know what those timelines are. Your job is not to try to orchestrate them yourself. Your job is to lean into your part of that plan that God is orchestrating. And he says, guys, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, he's looking at the disciples and he's saying, hey, you go ahead and let God do God's job and you do your job. God's going to do his, God, his job. God's going to fulfill his promise. God's going to make good on the things that he said he's going to make good on. What I need you to quit worrying about is that. And what I need you to start worrying about is your role in this process. And I feel like this isn't just applicable for the disciples in this moment, right? I feel like at some level we've all been here. Uh, we've all probably found ourselves in this place. Or, or you find yourself in this place regularly, right? We're so worried about the things that are going on around us, the things that we feel like we need to control, uh, our, our marriages, our kids, our jobs, our hobbies. We've got to have some kind of control over those things. And so we start spending our time and our energy that we should be using spending on mission, the same mission that Jesus has called us to, and instead we're starting to use our time and our energy trying to make sure that Jesus is good on his promises, that God has still holding everything together like he said he would. And so God's giving them this little subtle reminder, hey, you do your job and I'm going to do my job. And as soon as he gets done telling them, hey, don't forget to do your job, don't stop leaning into your job, he tells them, okay, that's what your job isn't. Your job is not to worry about God's job, but here's what your job is. And so we get to verse 8. We get to the verse that, that the word power is wrapped up in, and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he says, okay, your job is not to worry about what God's orchestrating and what God's taking care of. Your job is the back part of verse 8 right there where it says you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he says, your job is to go and be my witnesses in these places. And I think it's fascinating that he uses these places. And it's no coincidence that he gets specific, specific, vague, right? Here's, here's kind of the implication behind why he uses each, each of those three things, right? He says, Jerusalem. He says, hey, this job that you're being called to, I want you to know it is a big deal. It is not going to be an easy thing. I'm calling you to go to the same place they just crucified me. You're going to go to Jerusalem, and that's going to be ground zero. That's going to be where you start sharing the gospel with these people. And then you're going to go from, from Jerusalem, and then you're going to go to Judea and Samaria. And Judea is where they have rejected me, and they're going to reject you, but we're still taking the gospel to those places. Just because it's hard work doesn't mean that's where witnessing stops. We want to lean in to where the hard work is. So Jesus tells them, Judea, you're going there. Samaria, the people that don't feel like they belong, the half-breeds. Right? I want you to take it to where I've been crucified. I want you to take it to where I know they're going to reject you. And I want you to take it to the marginalized. I want you to go to where people feel like they don't have value. And I want you to take the gospel there because the gospel is for the rulers and authorities and the gospel is for the marginalized people. The gospel does not have preference. 
this good news of me being uh, dead and coming back to life for the sake of your sins being atoned for does not have a specific place it belongs. It belongs everywhere. And he kind of rounds that out and he says, to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, where they've crucified me. Judea, where they've rejected me. Samaria, where there's marginalized. And then to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus is telling them, hey, your job, as you were wondering, is to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. Everywhere the gospel can go is where I'm calling you to take it. And so don't worry about when God's going to restore Israel. God will worry about that, guys. What I need you to worry about is whether or not you're taking that gospel that does restore to the people you've been charged to. And so now he's telling them, hey, get your priorities off of the things that you're trying to have a tight grip on, right? AJ, get your priorities off of the things that you're trying to have a tight grip on and lean into this because this mission is not just for those apostles. This mission is for us. This mission is for everybody who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so they unpack, he unpacks this task for him. He says, this is what you're going to do. And immediately, it's probably a little overwhelming, right? It's probably a little concerning because that is a big job. And then he tells them, hey, that's what you're going to do. But don't worry, I have not neglected to give you the tools and the resources you need to go and do it. That first part of verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. So he's telling the apostles, this is your job. It is a big job. It is a big task. It is a job that every Christian throughout the course of history should be concerned with. It is a job that should be consuming the thoughts and the hearts of every person who has put their faith in Jesus because if you have put your faith in Jesus, you know there are other people who need to do the same thing. And so it is going to be a hard and, and not easy task. But what I want you to understand, Jesus is telling them, is that I am equipping you to do that task. You are going to have the power to go with uh, the Holy Spirit to make good on this job that I'm asking you to do. And, and it's pretty interesting because immediately, right at first glance, when they hear the word power from the Holy Spirit, this thing they're not familiar with yet, what they're probably thinking is a lot of what we were thinking on the front end of this, right? They're probably thinking, okay, well, power must mean uh, authority. Power, power must mean uh, dictatorship. Power must mean everything that I've seen in Caesar. Power must mean that ability that Pilate had uh, to, to, to make a decision on what happens to Jesus. That's what power looks like. Power probably looks like the Roman centurions uh, that were able to have their way with Jesus and beat him to a pulp. That's what power probably comes to mind in the disciples' head when they start to first hear this word. But the power uh, that Jesus is talking about here as, it, as the word power leaves his lips, it's different. It's this Greek word uh, dunamis, and it means miraculous strength, power, and, and might. That key word in that phrase for the Greek is miraculous. Jesus is saying to them, hey, I don't want you to think of power how you've ever thought of power before. What I want you to think of power when you lean into the Holy Spirit of God is in a miraculous way. He's saying that you've known power to look like this, disciples. You've known power to look like Caesar's reign, centurions, Rome. That's what you've known power to look like. But I want you to think of it in a new way. I want you to think of power as a miraculous thing that can come from God alone. When I tell you that you have power with the Holy Spirit, I want you to know that God is granting you miraculous power to be bold and to be brave. That's the kind of power he's telling them, I want you to walk around being my witnesses with. As you go to Jerusalem, where they've crucified me, as you go to Judea, where they've re rejected me, as you go to a place where there's marginalized people, as you go to places you have never stepped foot on before, what I want you to know, disciples, what I want you to know, Christians, is that you're able to go 
with a power that is completely capable of handling all of those things. I want you to know that you are going with a power that does not care that they have crucified me in Jerusalem because it is a power that's going to allow you to look death square in the face and not flinch because you're not only convinced of what is true, but what is true lives inside of you now. And so this big task that they're calling him to, he says, you are going to be completely capable. You just wait. When the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, the capabilities of the things that God is calling you to are going to be astronomical. It's the kind of power that's going to put you on trial for your faith, and you're going to be okay with because you know that that faith is the most important thing. It's the kind of power that's going to make you confident enough, Christian, around your friend groups, around your family members, around the people that you're uncomfortable with to share the gospel because that power is living inside of you as the person who has professed faith in Jesus. And he's telling the disciples the same thing. He's saying, hey, disciples, you're going to hard places. You're going to do hard things. There's going to be houses divided over this, but I want you to know that when this spirit comes, you are going to have the power to go and to make good on the thing that Jesus is calling you to do. And I love that you see the end of these disciples' lives as martyrs. Right? We get to hear about them in history, and we get to hear how they all looked death right in the face and said, you know what? It is better to go be with Jesus than flinch on the thing that I know is true. And so they start to lean into the gospel, and they see thousands of people reached throughout this book of Acts. And you see the gospel start to go places it's never been, and then you see them crucified because they were bold enough and willing to take a gospel that they thought was so precious to places it's never been, to people it's never been heard by, all because they had the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and I know that it seems kind of sometimes like when we read these passages, well, that's just for them. That's not really for us. But when you look at what Paul has to say in Ephesians 1.13, I think that it's pretty clear that same Holy Spirit, God's character doesn't change, that went to live in them is the same one that's coming to live in you. And he says in Ephesians 1.13, in his, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. And so Paul's saying, hey, Christian, not, not people in Acts, but people in a different church, in a different context, here's what I want you to be reminded of, that when you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the same Holy Spirit that those early apostles had. That same God that went to live in them is the same God that's gone to live in you. And so that same mission that they're called to is the same mission that you're called to. And it's not this one-off thing, it's this lifestyle that you start to take on. It's, it's this way that you start to be missional around people you've known your entire life and people you've never met before because there is nothing more important than the gospel of Jesus as you navigate this relationship with him, as you navigate the culture around you. And so this power that's accessed by the Holy Spirit that's living in you is the same power that as a Christian you have now. You've got that same power. And so simply put, if, if you're a Christian, you don't have to go try to find that power. You don't have to struggle through culture and society to try to attain power, but you have that same power through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's a gift that doesn't just come to dwell in the apostles. It has come to live in you. And so when eternity hangs in the balance, when ignorance to an unfathomable redeeming love hangs in the balance, I don't want us to be so concerned with our little worlds that we start to neglect to live on mission and neglect to take the gospel to people in places it hasn't been. I want us to believe the gospel so much. I want us to believe that the Holy Spirit of God is living in us so much that when it is hard to be evangelistic, when it's hard to take the gospel to places it hasn't been, we lean into that instead of worry about our own little worlds and start to trust that God is going to take care of our worlds and our job is to go and be faithful. That is the biggest 
uh, thing that you're going to wrestle with, right? The, the biggest challenge for the believer is believing the gospel, believing that what Jesus said is true and believing that when you believe that, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And so my encouragement for you and for me today is a reminder that the God of the universe lives inside of you and has decided to put you on mission. God does not need to put you on mission, but he has chosen to call you to be a part of the thing that he's gonna use to redeem and reconcile a broken world, to redeem and reconcile lost people that do not know him. He has called you to be a part of that, and that is no small task. That is a huge responsibility, right? And with great power comes great responsibility, right? With great power, with the power that you have, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you are responsible to start to take that message of the gospel to the people around you. You have everything you need to do that. You have the ability to get up and say yes. It is entirely up to you. It is entirely up to me. And so my prayer for you, my prayer for our local church, as location pastor Lake City, location specifically, and as a pastor at the Orchard Community Church, my prayer for our people is that they start to believe the gospel. They start to be bold enough to understand that the Holy Spirit is calling them to go to tough situations and tough places and to worry less about themselves and start caring more about the marginalized people, uh, the hostile people who don't know Jesus yet. Because what Jesus has done in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit how he has taken some of you that I have heard incredible testimonies about from lost and broken and hostile people to redeeming and graceful people. That is what he is trying and striving to do in the lives of the people around us. It is our job to take that gospel that changes their lives to them. And so my encouragement for you is that it's a simple yes every day. As you wake up, as you navigate the life around you, as you start to wonder, am I worrying too much about this and not enough about this? It is a decision to say, yes, I will give that to God so that I can go and live on mission today for the thing that he has called me and his disciples to do from the beginning of the church's age. That's what's so cool about the book of Acts. You're looking at the beginning of the church. The thing that we gather with on Sunday, this was the beginning of all that. How is all that stuff supposed to look? It's right there. It's supposed to look like you and me being bold enough to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you so much for a love that is redeeming, a love that has granted us power and gifted us power. Father, I pray that uh, we would not take that lightly and we would start to understand that you have put a big task in our hands, but uh, a task that'll never be completed if we never get off the couch, a task that'll never be completed if we don't ever take it seriously. And so, Father, I pray that you would give uh, myself the encouragement, myself the boldness. I pray that you would give the people listening uh, online this morning who are Christians, who call themselves Christians, the power and the boldness uh, to lean into that and to start living on mission. And Father, for the people who are listening that are not Christians this morning, Father, who are just checking this out for whatever reason, I, I pray that you would start to uh, open their eyes and let them know that this same God who has instilled his Holy Spirit to people and, and loved them with a redeeming love is the same God who desires to do the same thing for them. I pray that you would help us to be the hands and feet uh, to the people who are not listening this morning so that they can hear the same good news. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.